Sisters, hear the good news. We know that sin deserves death. We know that we are all sinners, therefore we deserve death. That death is a full separation from God. Adam and Eve were cast out of the presence of the Lord, and henceforth sinners deserve that for all eternity. Yet when, de- when Jesus died, he died not for his own sin. He never coveted his neighbor's wealth, never talked back to his mother, never lusted after a woman or bore false witness against an enemy. He was perfect in all his ways. Yet he died, and it was because of sin, because of your sin, because of the sins of the many that he willingly laid down his life for, because of thieves, liars, malcontents, and wayward children. He bore the wrath and the suffering and the darkness for you. He bore the weight of a lifetime of sin in a few moments of time, all because of his love for you, even when you were lost in your own sin. And because of his love, you have been set free from that penalty of sin. You now know God, are accepted by him, and will forever live with him. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For its profit is better than the profit of silver, and its gain than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up, and the skies drip with dew. My son, let them not depart from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be your life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For Yahweh will be your confidence, and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives in security beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the crooked man is an abomination to Yahweh, but he is intimate with the upright. The curse of Yahweh is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, 
Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponents at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Please turn to the back of your bulletin now. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 131. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I received a lot of comments last week, particularly about the peanut oil. So I'm glad to hear that everybody was paying attention. There was a lot of confusion about whether I poured the peanut oil on the carpet in my car. But the truth is, for those of you that misunderstood, I actually poured it in the engine. We have since driven the car to the beach and back. It's healthy and fine without peanut oil. So we're thankful for that. And uh, our hot water heater was fixed due to the good deeds of my father-in-law and my brother-in-law. So we give thanks to God for that. We're back in James chapter 4 today. And the source, uh, the, the, the question again is, what are the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And it's a serious topic. In our 12-year stint in Minnesota, we saw quarrels and conflict in the church. And I'm sure that's been the experience of, of many of you, that there is trouble. There may be a period of respite, but then trouble comes, and James tells us that that trouble comes because of our desires. Our desires give birth to quarrels and conflict and then, as he says in chapter 1, they issue forth in death. If you would, pray with me. Father, we come before you, and Lord, it's a serious topic to consider. You call us, you say, that we are adulterers, adulteresses, as evidenced 
by the strife and the quarrels that come within us that arise because of our lust and desires for perversions of the good things that you have made. So, Lord, I pray that as we look into your word today, that we would heed it, that we would hear from you. We pray that you would speak, you, the jealous, consuming God, that calls your bride to purity and holiness. Lord, I pray that we would hear your word and be humbled before you, and that you would lift us up as you promise. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. If you would, let's begin this time. We're going to read starting from James chapter 3, verse 13. Last week, I intended to make it all the way through verse 12. I intend the same thing again, full of good intentions. So we'll see how this goes. But James chapter 3, verse 13, I want to begin here to remind us that the subject is wisdom. Do we have wisdom? God gives us trouble for the purpose of bringing about that wisdom. And when, when we view God's trouble wrongly, and we, we give issue forth to wrong desires and wrong lusts, we don't get wisdom. Instead, we get trouble, murder, and strife. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder, instability, and every evil thing. But the wisdom which is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wickedly, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Remember that this falls within the larger section, beginning in chapter 3, discussing what we do with our tongues, particularly and James says we should be slow to speak. And so an outline for today, chapter 4, if I haven't given it before, verses 1 through 3 of, 
of James chapter 4, he's answering the question of the problem. What is the source of quarrels and, and conflicts among you? So those three verses tell us, and we've, we've looked at them twice now, so we'll not revisit those again. They tell us what the answer to that question is. It is the desires that are within us. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see God's response to those desires, those wicked lusts. He says, you are adulteresses. You are an unfaithful bride that's departed from me and gone after another lover called the world. And we'll pick up in the middle of this section because I did not discuss verse 5 last week. But then moving on in 6 through 10, he gives the answer. What are we to do? We who are adulteresses, who have allowed conflict and trouble to creep among us because of our sinful desires, and the answer is, humble yourselves before the Lord. He moves into a series of commands in verses 7 through 10 that describe for us exactly what it looks like to humble yourselves before the, before the Lord, but the answer is simple. Humble. Humble yourselves. Be lowered before God. And then verses 11 and 12, in the presence of God, then, we have another set of commands, which acts as a bookend to the beginning of chapter 3, coming back to the question of how, what do we do with our speech, particularly, particularly in the context of how we treat one another. So in the presence of God, we've come into his presence in verses 7 through 10, and there he says, do not speak against one another. And it acts as a conclusion and a transition to the next section of the book. So picking up where we left off last week, we want to look specifically at verse 5. Remember, what he's done is he's shown us that, that brotherly conflict that results in fratricide. He says that this is also adultery. You are adulteresses because of your love for the world. That word friendship in verse 4, remember, is the word philos. It's a word for love. You love the world, and that love of the world is enmity towards God. And then in verse 5, he asks this question. Do you think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? You could translate that, do you think that Scripture speaks in vain? Or if we use the word that the NSB uses in chapter 2, he says in chapter 2, verse 20, are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? It's the word foolish in, in chapter 2, verse 20. So that combatant that he's arguing with when he's talking about faith and works, he says, do you not know, you foolish fellow? Here he says, do you think that the scripture speaks foolishly? Is the scripture like that foolish fellow that says that faith can come and not issue forth in works? And of course the answer is, is no. Faith without works is dead. And so he asks this question, do you think that the scripture speaks foolishly or to no end, to no purpose? And then we have what amounts to a, a very confusing translation. If any of you are sporting the King James Version, it will read something very differently than what I read to you. It says, do you think that the scripture speaks in vain? The spirit that dwells in us lusteth towards envy. As the NASB translates the same phrase, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us. If you can follow the, the logic of those two sentences, they go off in two different directions. Under one translation in the Old King James, which, which does not maintain itself in the New King James, the, the translator said that the subject of this statement is our spirit that God put within us. So man's spirit that God put within us, it lusteth, it yearns towards envy. So it's a statement about the wickedness of men. 
On the other hand, and there's an infinite array of translations in between because there's, there's both a question of who's the subject, who's the object, and then are the verbs negative or positive. On the other hand, the NASB, the one I read, says God jealously desires the Spirit, and in the NASB it's a capital S, Holy Spirit, because there's no difference in the Greek word. He jealously desires the Spirit whom He has made to dwell in us. And so the questions are, who is the subject of the yearning or the desire? Is it God? Is it the Spirit, our Spirit? Or is it the capital S, Holy Spirit? And then what is the object of that yearning or that desire? And there's problems no matter which way you look, or at least that's what I read. I think, though, if you stand back from this, he uses two words, two, two words for yearning, jealousy, coveting, depending on which translation you use. So they can lean positive or lean negative. And what's confusing about it is usually the word that's translated jealousy is normally translated envy, and it's a negative word. It's one that's used of mankind. The word that's translated in, in my version, yearn, and in the KJV is translated as lust, is usually a positive word. You long for. So in the rest of the New Testament, it's, it's, it's usually referring to Paul longing for the believers that he's apart from. That's the most, most normal use of that word. So you, you have words that, that point us in both directions. And so there's a lot of argumentation about, well, what exactly does this mean? Which, which way should we head? Very few people take a step back and say, well, why did God give us this confusion? And I think if you put it in the context of chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 3, we're talking about desires, lusts. And then in chapter 4, verse 5, we're forced to confront it where the, the subject can be us and our yearning, or the subject can be God, and I would tend towards, that's probably a better translation, God yearns because of verses 4 and 6, the subject is God in verse 6. God is the one that gives the greater grace. God is the one that yearns for us. But nonetheless, we're forced to confront these two words and compare then our yearnings, our desires, to God's yearning or desire. And so here, then, God yearns. He longs for the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, and he does that jealously. Consider this. He says, when quarrels and conflict arise, it's because of your desires. And you have those desires, and they're not fulfilled, and so you're frustrated, and you lash out at one another, and that's evidence of the fact that you have pleasures that are separate from God. You have perverted the treasures that God has stored up for us. Remember, we went back to Genesis 1 last week and looked at those treasures they refuse to wait for God. Instead, they listened to the voice of the serpent and they grasped the hold and perverted what God had given. And so he says, this is evidence that you are adulteresses. And yet contrast that with verse 5. Do you think that scripture speaks to no purpose, speaks in vain? God jealously yearns, jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell 
in us. If we look at it that way, God is longing after his adulterous bride. He wants to see the spirit that he has placed in her. And we know from the very giving of the Ten Commandments that God is a jealous God. God wants his bride to be pure and holy. But when we compare ourselves as the subject and God as the subject, you can, you can use the word jealous or yearn or desire for either one. But those desires put in contrast are very different. The jealousy looks different. So what is the source of that difference? When you use the word jealousy of God and say God is a jealous God, it's because he's jealous for the wife that he possesses, that he made. We are his possession. Whereas when you use that same word and you change the English translation so the connotation to us sounds different when you say envy, we envy, we long for, we yearn for things that are not ours, that God has not given us. And so put in relief like that, we're forced to, we're forced to step back and say, well, God... God's yearnings are what our yearnings should be like. And a lot of people take this and they say, well, this is, this is wonderful. God yearns jealously for his adulterous wife. There's comfort in that. And indeed, that's true, but there's danger in a jealous God. So keep your fingers in James and flip quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In verse 13, you shall fear only Yahweh your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you, for Yahweh your God is in the midst of you. He is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of Yahweh your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. So there's danger in the fact that God is a jealous God, that he's yearning jealously for his adulterous bride. And we read that here in Deuteronomy 6. Flip, flip backwards one more time to Numbers 25, a familiar Old Testament passage. Remember in Numbers 25, Balaam has, uh, after failing to curse the nation of Israel, He's told Balak how to deceive them, how to lure them away into adultery. And that's exactly what happens in Numbers 25. Let's read beginning in verse 1. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and Yahweh was angry against Israel. Notice that it's not just harlotry that's going on. Instead, it's harlotry, but on top of that, the sin is they invited the people to sacrifice to the sacrifices of their God. So they entered into worship with the daughters of Moab. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and Yahweh was angry against Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before Yahweh, so that the fierce anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. 
Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body so that the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And that word tent is the word inner room. So they had gone inside the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle, Phineas pierced the man and his adulterous harlot through, and the plague was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous. This is the word for jealousy that means hot. It's zeal. You have passion. He was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. And so Phinehas, he picks up the jealousy of God, and he acts on it. And the plague is checked, and God says... Because Phineas, the son of Eleazar, was jealous with my jealousy, I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. This is what it looks like for God to be a jealous God with an adulterous wife. Therefore, verse 12, say, Behold, I have given him my covenant of peace. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. So we'll flip back to, to James here, but I just want to point out two, two things. The result of Phineas taking up the jealousy of God is God gave him a covenant of peace that should remind you of James. He says, the wisdom from above, come, wisdom should come down from above. And the result of that heavenly wisdom is a seed whose fruit is peace by those who make peace. Now, this may sound counterintuitive, but we have to hold this in mind as we read the rest of the book of James, and, and he'll help us along with that. The second observation is in verse 13. It says that he made atonement. He made the covering for the sons of Israel. Keep that in mind as well when we come to James's solution. Remember, they were worshiping other gods. They were entering into worship, and now we have the reference to the festival of atonement, the covering of the sins of the people of Israel. So back in James, do you think this, the scripture speaks foolishly? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So if we take this translation, what James is saying is, the answer of course is no, the scripture does not speak in vain, it does not speak foolishly. So the rhetorical answer to that, that, that question is no. And the, the, the understanding behind it is God desires that spirit. So will he allow those of his community of faith to pursue the words of faith without the action of faith? If we import James chapter 2 into this context here, where he's, the foolish fellow there was saying faith without works, that's fine. And James says, no, faith without works is dead. It cannot be that the wife of God continues to exist in an adulterous state with God's name 
on her lips, taking and asking for God for the fulfillment of her desires, this condition cannot continue to be. But then he answers in verse 6, but God gives greater grace. So we have something incompatible. In the church, these desires have issued forth in conflict that is adulterous. And God's jealousy must issue forth in wrath. But now James says, but God gives greater grace. So how can that adulterous bride be purified? How can the relationship be reconciled and amended? And he quotes out of Proverbs chapter 3. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So this is James' James's answer. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the jealous God, in Numbers chapter 25, his jealousy is stayed by, by the action of Phineas, and the people are rescued. So there is a salvation that we see. There's an atonement that's made in Numbers chapter 25 for the people, and the bride is rescued, the bride is purified. Here in, in James chapter 4, God gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so when you see the two halves of God's jealousy, he's pursuing his adulterous bride, and that can either result in death and condemnation or in salvation. Reference down to verse 12, the one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if we, in our pride, continue with quarrels and conflicts that are based on the lust that we have, we've, when we fail to ask God so we do not obtain, we grow in frustration and we lash out at one another, the end result is if we lift up our, sh our fist and shake it at God and say, you are the reason that I have this trouble, the end result is death and destruction. God's jealousy will put his wife to death. But there's a promise. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you would, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. And Hyde read for us uh, a little bit of a longer section, but I wanted to look just at verse 27 to verse 35. In James chapter 4, he quotes out of the Septuagint. The translation is a little bit different out of the Masoretic text in, in Proverbs chapter 3. So he says in verse 27, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives in security beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways, for the crooked man is an abomination to Yahweh, but he is intimate with the upright. The curse of Yahweh is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools will lift up dishonor. So notice in this section where he's quoting from, the context is what you do with one another, how you treat your neighbor. This is what James has been talking about all along through chapter 2, 3, and 4. 
when we come to the law, when we come to the law to see the good reflection of what God made us to be and to call on Him for His good gifts, we see our view of God in how we treat one another. And so these verses are about what we do with one another. When Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow, and, and tomorrow I'll give it. It sounds, sounds like what James said in chapter 2. Don't, don't go to those who are hungry and say, be warmed and be filled. Your words are empty. They're meaningless. Instead, give that good. And the end of this passage is God scoffs at scoffers. The word scoffs is you, you make mouths at. And, and so the picture, maybe you, you could take Psalm, Psalm 2. We scoff at God, we scoff at one another, and God will scoff back at us. He'll make mouths at us. And in the Septuagint, that then is translated in what we see in James chapter 4. God is opposed. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Or here in Proverbs 3, the afflicted. We'll talk about that in a minute. One more observation out of Proverbs, Proverbs 3. The wise will inherit honor, but fools will lift up or be lifted up to dishonor or shame. Flip back to James 3. So we begin this section with a direct quote of Proverbs 3.34. In Proverbs, uh, sorry, in, in verse 10, we have an inclusio to, back to Proverbs. Humble yourselves before the face of the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Remember, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in the next verse says that fools will be lifted up to shame. Here we have the opposite of that in verse 10. Humble yourselves in the face of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And in between we have this series of commands that may seem somewhat, somewhat random. All of this is about this answer of humility. Humble yourselves before God. We all have or will have conflict that looks like James chapter 4. And James gives us a very simple answer. Humble yourselves. Bring yourselves low. Low before God and God will lift you up. What is the source of those quarrels and conflicts? Is it not your desires, your pleasures that you want but you don't ask for? And when you do ask, you ask wickedly. When we come to God in humility and we lift up our desires, they get straightened out. God fulfills them. Our frustration disappears. Not because those wicked desires are fulfilled, but because God changes, he refreshes and renews our desires. And when that happens, what happens to our words? Our scoffing words disappear. God gives us grace. So what does it mean to humble yourself before the Lord? He says in verse 7, there's, there's a series of couplets. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then we have a set of four parallel statements. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So those two go together. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This second couplet also goes together. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And then finally, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 
So what holds all of these statements together? What is James thinking about? If we begin in verse 7, as he's describing what it means to bring yourself low before God, he says, first, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Naturally, our mind should think back to Genesis chapter 3, where we've been for a couple weeks. We should be thinking about Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, where, where Jesus resists the devil in, in the wilderness. And th- those, those two stories go together in the chronology of the Bible. Right? So Satan comes to tempt he comes to Eve, and, and she sees that the, the, the treasures of God are there. The tree is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise. And Satan brings temptation to twist and to take away, to twist the good things God has given into wicked desires apart from God. And he does the same thing with Jesus in the wilderness. Of course, the result is very different. But James begins our, his admonition to us, if we are to humble ourselves before the Lord, the first thing we have to do is resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So speaking to his adulterous wife, he's telling us to put away your other lover. You cannot come back to me and have your lover on the side. It doesn't work. right? So when he says, when you finally ask me, you ask wickedly so that you may spend it on your pleasures, it's because sometimes when we come to God, we're trying to hold that lover with us. And we're coming to God and say, all right, can you, can, you give me, can you give me good gifts so that I can give them to my lover? There's an old English word for that that we don't use very much anymore. It, it's a cuckold. It, it's not a very pretty word, but it's, it's to take God and to try to make him into a husband that, that just watches on vainly, foolishly, while his wife pursues another. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We're not going to go look at the temptation of Jesus, but I, I think we, we know this is what it looks like to resist the devil, to use God's word that he's planted in us. Remember chapter 1, we're birthed from the word, not from lust. We're birthed from the word, and he implanted that word in our souls. And so we take that word, and he says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then secondly, in parallel to that, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is not just random language. The drawing near to God is the word that he uses in worship, in sacrificial worship. So it's an Old Testament reference. Draw near to me. So in Leviticus, when you you take the offering, the offering is the drawing near. You come into the presence of God, you draw near to him. Now, thinking about this, if you read through the commentators, some of them will dispose of this concept of drawing near to God in, in sacrifice in the tabernacle, in the temple, because God does not draw near back. But there is several Old Testament references that sound just like this. They use the word, turn to me, or return to me, and they're all in the minor prophets. Why? So if you think about how the Old Testament is structured, God, he sits in his house with his feet rested on his footstool inside the inner room, And he calls his people, come draw near to me. And you know God is there. Think about Solomon's prayer. Whenever people come here, whenever they pray here, Lord, answer them, hear them, be with them. And yet when you get to the minor prophets, God has left. He's left his house. The people are in exile. And so God says, turn to me, return to me, and I will return to you. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. They can't get back to the temple, and yet we have this promise. Draw near to me, 
and I will draw near to you. Think about the context of James. He's writing, again, to the 12 tribes dispersed. They're, they're cast out. And it's easy for us, as, as modern Christians, we know the story. But these are early Christians cast out of Jerusalem. They're dispersed. They can't go back to the temple. But God says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. It's a promise. So first, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And then he moves on. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we have these two verbs, command, cleanse and purify. They're very, very similar. And if you go back and look look at the Old Testament etymology, you can maybe, maybe distinguish the two depending on which, which passage you're looking at. There's, there's cleansing fire and there's purifying water in Numbers 31. But the objects of those verbs, cleanse your hands, so he's, take your hands, you need, your hands need cleansing because you've acted wickedly. You've reached out and you've struck your brother like Cain. You need to cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. So we have both the, the, the hands bringing the offering must be clean. But then as we always hear in the Old Testament, he says, circumcise your hearts, purify your hearts. And so the root has to be purified as well. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember that word double-minded is a, a word in James. You won't see it referenced any, anywhere else. He, he attaches the word to two souls, two minds. And he either uses this word or alludes to this idea throughout the entirety of his book. He says, these things cannot be. The one who comes to God and asks him for wisdom, if he asks, and he's double, a double-minded man, he asks and he judges, let not that man expect to receive anything. So first, the one of those minds that's a lover of the world, it has to be put to death. Pure minds means one wife, one devoted wife to her husband, Christ. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then we move to the third couplet. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. The idea of mourning for our sin is not one that the modern church practices very much. He uses a set of three words, be miserable, mourn, and weep. Now, there are some people that have a tendency towards mournfulness, which is, is, is not exactly what James has in mind. When he says, be miserable, mourn, and weep, remember that that is written in the book whose main point is, count it all joy when you encountered all kinds of trouble. So, he commands us to rejoice, but here specifically in this context of the adulterous wife, he says, be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your joy be turned into gloom and your laughter into mourning. Well, what is he calling us to? Paul calls this kind of response a godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Why don't we turn there, and then we'll, we'll come back to the Old Testament in just a second. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I think, will help us in understanding what this morning is. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. 
For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. And though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow only for a while, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to God produces repentance without regret unto salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's two kinds of mourning. One, there's a perpetual state of mourning in which we can be tempted to think that our mourning will somehow make us righteous. There's this perpetual mourning. And and there is a temptation in, in certain Christians unto that kind of mourning, where if I just weep enough for my sin, then it will be made right. But Paul says, no, there's a godly sorrow, and the distinction is that that godly sorrow, the misery, the mourning, the weeping, it leads unto life and repentance without regret. So without looking back. So this kind of mourning, we come into the presence of God and we're mournful as an adulterous wife should be. Cast down because we need God's mercy. And we ought to practice this. Our sin should produce misery, mourning, weeping. And there's a sense, Paul Paul chastises the church in Corinth in, in his first epistle. He says, there's a man among you who has taken his, his father's wife, and yet you don't mourn. You're arrogant. You're proud. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he, he takes that idea of mourning, and by the time we, we move through the book, uh, the epistle to the, the, the Corinthians, there's this idea of a godly mourning that produces full repentance. And that's what happens in the second epistle. So he says, be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. So when we humble ourselves before the Lord, we come into his presence having put away our our lover, the world, having drawn near to God in offering and sacrifice, having cleansed our hands, purified our hearts so that we're no longer double-minded, but we're now made pure, single-minded, devoted to God, our husband, miserable because of our sin, but then there's the promise. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So the picture is we have our heads face down, bent over because of sin, and God's promise is those who are humble before me, I will lift you up. If you would, turn to Leviticus 16. Remember, Leviticus 16 is the prescription for the Day of Atonement in which the nation draws near to God in the fullest expression that Israel ever did. The high priest goes into the inner room and he places the blood of the atonement, the blood of the covering on the ark, on the footstool of God, and the people's sins are atoned for. 
I think Leviticus 16, this idea of the festival of atonement, is the one that's behind James's thought for us in James chapter 4. So let's read only at the end. I want to read Leviticus 16, verse 29. And this shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls. This phrase, humble your souls, is one that is, is specific to the Day of Atonement. The King James will translate it, afflict your souls. Come and afflict your souls. Be brought low before God. Come humble your souls. Don't do any work, whether native or the alien who sojourns among you. It's on this day that the covering, the atonement, shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean from all your sins before Yahweh. It will be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, and he shall put on the linen garments, on the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, so he did. And so once a year they drew near to God. They humbled their souls before him. They were brought low in misery, mourning, and weeping. They resisted the devil, that worldly wife, and they came to God and God forgave. He cleansed their hands, he made them pure, and he raised them up to be his wife. Remember we read out of Numbers chapter 25, Phineas, when he pierces the man through in the inner room, is a reference to this day, the day of atonement, the day of covering. And that's what James calls us to. He says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable. Mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the face of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Judge yourself, lest you be judged. We come into the presence of the Lord, and the problem in the church in Corinth is they were not judging themselves rightly. There was quarrels, conflicts, and divisions among them. And he says, Judge yourselves rightly. Judge yourselves, lest you be judged. Come into the presence of the Lord with mourning, weeping, and misery, and he will lift your face up. And that's what we do. We come bearing our sins to put them at the feet of Yahweh, trusting in his mercy, trusting that what Solomon wrote in Proverbs is true, that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so when we have those desires that work themselves out and produce and give birth to conflict that issues forth in death, we take those desires and put them and submit them under the feet of God to be corrected and transformed from his word, and that's what he does. We look into the word of truth. Back in chapter 1, remember, we look into it like a mirror. He shows us who we are, who he made us to be, the spirit that he put within us for which he jealously yearns, and God transforms those desires so that we long after the treasures that come from him. Remember what Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 2, the treasures of God are wisdom and knowledge, and God opens those up for us. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. 
Before we run out of time, which I think we almost are, but I remember I get extra time. <laughs> ah. So verses 11 and 12. Uh, we'll, we'll look at these in transition again, but, but before we depart from this section... I changed my mind. Let's do something different with our extra time. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll come back to verses 11 and 12. But as, as we're coming to the conclusion of this section, remember the source of this problem, the desires that come within us, they issue forth out of our mouths against one another. And in chapter 3, if you can recall back that, that far away, he says that the tongue is a burning fire. It's set on fire by hell. And he gives no hope for that tongue. Instead, you have to struggle and wrestle against it because it's always at the ready to leap out and bite your brother. I want to I close with these two passages. Remember that there is another fire that sets on fire our tongues. And it happens when we obey God. We humble ourselves before Him and come into the sanctuary, draw near to Him, and then we are set on fire by God. He transforms us. And so let's read in Isaiah 6, and in Isaiah 6, verse 1. Remember, Isaiah is coming into the presence of God. He's drawing near. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw... I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am a ruined man, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I have lived among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." He's drawn near into the presence of God, and God has already called him to issue forth six woes against Israel, but now he issues forth the seventh against himself. I've come into the inner room. I've seen the king of glory. Woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips. And God says, one of the fiery ones comes with a coal. He sets it on his lips, and he cleanses those lips. And, of course, we see the fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 2. God jealously yearns for his spirit within us and he brings the atonement and the purification so that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost they were all together in one place and there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributed on themselves and they rested on each one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak. God takes us when we're humbled before him and he cleanses that wicked member of our body that lashes out and destroys those that are around us, that takes and murders our brothers 
He removes the iniquity, and he gives it a new fire, the fire that comes from his temple, so that we're set on fire now from his house in the person of the Spirit. And that Holy Spirit works his way out through our tongues so that what we speak, we, we speak and we encourage one another to love and good deeds. We speak and we bring each other to our needs. Not that there's no judgment. We'll have to talk about this in verses 11 and 12. But the slander is put away and our speech is purified so that when we do judge, we judge as those who are submitted and humbled underneath the foot of God. Let's give thanks to God that He is a good and gracious God. And let's humble ourselves before Him, if you would pray with me. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You have had mercy on Your adulterous wife. We thank You that we who have failed to come to You and ask and have asked wrongly, wickedly, to spend it on our lover, on our pleasures. We thank you that you bring us low for our own good. You bring us trouble and, and trial to make us wise, to make us pure and righteous before you. And Lord, give us ears to hear, purify our tongues today so that we speak to one another what's good and right and true, so that the, the words leaving our lips are not words of conflict and slander, but we enact truly the law of liberty which says love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, make us that people, a wife with whom you are pleased. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus who can do all of this and more. Amen.